That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. So excited to be here today. We've got something unique for this episode. This is a box set that just came out. It celebrates an 80s music scene that we were vaguely familiar with. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this. What, what is it? Okay, so the label is called Captured Tracks, and the founder who we're speaking to, his name is Mike Sniper. But the name of the album is called Strum and Thrum, The American Jangle Underground, 1983 to 1987. And in this scene, there are a bunch of bands that, some that we've heard of, and, you know, REM is at the top, although they're not at this compilation. A bunch of bands that we're going to speak to this episode, the Darrows, the Ferrets, the Bangtails, and the Great Plains. These bands, they had uh, a, a thriving local scene that they, they played in. And we're going to get into that. And kind of, these were bands that kind of took off a little bit and had a little bit of heat and got some airplay on college radio. And so we're going to kind of dig into wh- what it was like at the time, where they are now, kind of learn all about what this strum and thrum scene is. And we don't even know if strum and thrum is the correct term. No, but turns out we like the music without even knowing what it was called at the time. Yeah, well, we love we love '80s music, and we love uh, we love that sound. This was something unique. It was it definitely was a college radio sound that uh, that we always, that we played. There were little pockets all over the all over the country, and this uh, this album, this box set, Strum and Thrum, kind of uh, celebrates this type of music. It's it's kind of cool. Yeah, so let's get into it. Here's Mike Sniper from Captured Tracks. Every band we've talked to has been so, uh, they, they received their package of uh, yeah. Strum and Thrum, and uh, they've just been over the moon on the look. The, they love the, uh, the, the vinyl. They love yeah. the booklet. It just, uh, just has a lot, of, a lot of stuff in there. There's, it's, yeah. it's a fun, it's just a fun coffee table read, I guess. It's, you know? I mean, for me, it's like one of the cool things about these reissues is that, right? It is a you know, one of the reasons why people buy these things is for seeing all that ephemera and kind of getting into yeah. that world, um, which is why I kept on hassling everyone. Like, please send us more stuff. <laughs> like, we want more photos, more old merch you might have had. There's a lot of stuff in there. Well, we're basically creating an entire context for something, right? Mm-hmm. So if this was... Like, I love 60s garage comps. I love 60s Northern Soul comps. I love all those, but the context already exists, right? You don't really have to. It's almost like I have to explain why this comp exists, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh, there's a market already here. Let's cater to it. And there's, I'm not saying anything wrong with that. That's cool because I'm that market too. So, you know, if you have something that's like a rare 70s punk, like Kill by Dust style punk compilation, you don't really need to provide any reason as to what is this? Why am I buying this? It's like, if you like that kind of music, you're going to want to buy it. So for me, I was thinking on both on 
two sides. One was the collector market of people my age and younger, you know, uh, and slightly older of people who collect the equivalent of this kind of music, but not American music. Right. And then I was also thinking of a younger audience who are fans with some of the bands on our label. So I was trying to like cater to both of those two markets. Sometimes they interact, but you know, there's lots of, let's be honest, record snobs that don't pay attention to any new music, right? They, <laughs> there are people going to buy this comp with no idea who dive and beach fossils are. And that's fine. And there are people on this, like who buy this comp who know who dive and beach fossils are and have never heard a flying nun record in their life. And that's fine too. So that's, that's kind of like where, so I, first of all, I wanted it. Like I wanted this <laughs> compilation to be in my collection. I wanted it to have a big book and I wanted it to have stories in it. And I wanted it to have as much ephemera in it as possible. Look really nice. Like it was a complete, completely and utterly, you know, it was almost like I was creating a gift for myself, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. And, I get uh, that. Hopefully other people like it. You know, that's, that's how I see this entire series going of excavations of this is like part one of it. But, um, you know, it's not always going to be, this kind of music. It's not always gonna be 80s music. It's not always gonna be guitar-based music, but I figured for the first one, this is the most appropriate. That was Patron of the Arts by The Bang Tales. And now we speak with Mark White and Michael Sump from the band. Sumpy, buddy. <laughs> What's up, man? How long has it been yeah, since you guys have seen each other? We've seen each other for a long time. No, I mean, I, I saw Archer back in the maybe 1989 or 1990 when I was in Massachusetts, but I haven't seen you since Kansas City, Mike. Yeah. Wow. Been a long yeah. time. Yeah, really long time. Good to see you, buddy. How long have you been up in New York, Mike? Um, it's just uh, almost 20 years now. Wow. Yeah, I'm in Columbus for about 20 now. Columbus, Ohio. So you guys both grew up in Kansas City. I grew up in uh, just outside of, in Lawrence, Kansas, which is practically a suburb, really. Yeah. It's the Jayhawks. The, that's where the university Jayhawks. is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about when I met Mike, um, and Archer, for that matter, although I knew Archer first because we went to school together. But I'd been hanging out, going to these all-age shows that were just like hardcore um, and, you know, pretty basic stuff. And it wasn't, you know, the music was, was, you know, it was okay, but it was more of a scene than anything. Because I was more interested. I was, you know, had listened to The Clash and The Jam and, you know, more, more tuneful accomplished players. And when I met Mike, uh, you know, he really 
got my attention because he actually knew how to play guitar. He didn't just buy a guitar mm-hmm. and learn three chords. He actually knew how to play guitar. And that was actually a pretty rare phenomenon at the time. That's how it started. I only played our first uh, practice in Mark's apartment. Yeah, that was a great practice space, man. Yeah, in an apartment? <laughs> what was this apartment like? Yeah. Well, it was actually great. <laughs> It was a big old house that, like, typical in student housing, it had been broken up into, like, four or five apartments. And Scott Rabko and I were roommates there. You know, we moved in and we paid our rent, you know, for a number of months. And eventually, the guy stopped coming around for the rent. And we never saw him again. (laughs) So we never paid rent again. We just stayed in that house. It was a legitimate squat. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I squatted there then, too, later. Yeah, you later on moved in. In fact, you know, the band was always like all, or the, the house was always all musicians. And there were like three practice spaces in the basement. This was and your- the only way, actually, I was able to afford a, dr- I bought a, a new drum kit, one drum at a time, was because I wasn't paying rent. So I had this extra, you know, spending money. And, you know, eventually the bank came around and they kicked us all out of the house. And that was kind of, I think, right around the time the band ended. There's no connection between the two events. But I kind of feel like after that practice, I don't, we didn't have a practice space after that. I looked on YouTube for Patron of the Arts and there's a guy, Jeff Johnson. Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, he was the uh, engineer. Okay, because he, he did, he posted a comment, said I talking about Patron of the Arts, that uh, he said, I sort of had to convince the band that, that the almost completely broken quality of the vocals was not to be fixed or messed with. Plus, the band was pretty much out of money after four hours at 15 bucks an hour. So, does that sound about right? <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah, that was... It was a <laughs> We scraped by. I, yeah, I know. We were talking about Jeff Johnson. He recorded uh, Patron of the Arts in his studio. That's the guy. Yeah. Well, well, 15 bucks an hour. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a God. long time ago. That's, that's a good, yeah. Well, how a, poor were we that that was all we had to spend 60 bucks for this thing? Yeah. God. Yeah, well, he was, he was actually cool. He wanted to do it, so, you know. Yeah. Were you aware of this term strum and thrum, and would you use that to describe your music, or was <laughs> it, how would you describe the band? Because I'm sure that's what everyone always asks the band. How would you describe your sound? Well, I said, I, I described it as a uh, melodic stomping and screaming or whatever. I can't remember the, the actual quote. <laughs> so it's close. I've heard jangly applied to patron of the arts, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's not any live. There's like one song, I think on that live from Lawrence LP compilation. Yeah. That is a live recording of us. The record that we have that patron of the arts song, it's, it's actually a lot poppier than most of what we played. You know, Mike's guitar feedback and the kind of like heavy sounds he would get out of this. What was that Gibson guitar years, man? That was like falling yeah, apart. I forgot it. it was this really deep hollow body. And that thing would just howl. There's like Mike would play the feedback, you know, as part of the song. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't really, that doesn't sound to me like it's strum and thrum or jangle. We are more of a live band than... I mean, our live show, I always thought we couldn't really yeah, figure we out how to... Way out there. there was a lot of jamming, a lot of jammy stuff. Songs would go on and they'd sort of rise and fall. And- yeah, yeah. It seemed like every time we played, we played new songs, all new songs. Yeah, yeah. I will say, did you get your copy of the record, Mike? No. I'm going to go oh, buy God, the orange. 
It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's I got beautiful. it a couple days ago. You want to describe it? it? Yeah, what? You got it? yeah, I got it. Yeah, they got oh. the vinyl, the orange vinyl, and you're you gonna the love orange it. vinyl. <laughs> That's what they sent me. That's probably what you'll get. Well, I was gonna go buy one. I'm actually gonna go buy one anyway. Oh, you- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's you I'm need right. to make a phone call. It's gorgeous. It's a really great looking package. I mean, it's, it's a great package, but it's also great. The sound. I, I've listened to all the tracks. Yeah. Before and uh, there's not a clinker in, in any of them. And I'm a music snob, so. Yeah, it's a pretty lively a bunch of bands, I have to say. You know, a lot of these bands, I have to tell you, they were a lot more accomplished than we were when I was reading the. They all had like connections and toured with, you know, yeah. you know, bands that you'd heard of and were there in the early days. And, you know, we were like on the tail end of the, of the era that is covered. And we only had that, you know, one 12 inch record we put out. And we didn't really tour. We were sort of confined to I-70 between Lawrence, Kansas, and St. Louis. And I don't even know if we got to St. Louis more than once or twice. Well, we used to play the Grand Emporium all the time. That was I love that place. That was our home base. Is this yeah, Kansas was, City? Uh, Is that What was that club like? That was a, a blues club, but uh, they started, it became this um, alternative music place. We were one of the first ones to play, Played the uh, do their alternative yeah, we would be at the Emporium on Monday night, no matter who was on the bill, because that yeah. was the definition of a scene. You know, the bands were going to be cool, even if you didn't know who they were, and all your friends were going to be there. You knew the bartender. The doorman would always let you in because you were like a regular. They and had 50-cent draws and, you know, 50 cents for a beer. I mean, that was we, what we lived on. The other place we played a lot was the Blue Note in Columbia, Missouri. Yeah. Yeah, we shuffled between, I mean, our home base was the Emporium in Kansas City, but we could get over to Columbia, Missouri, which is the the campus, you know, it's like Austin, Texas, it's in the middle of this horrible red state, but it's just one cool town. And we were called not infrequently to open for touring acts there. We opened for John Hyatt there. It's a great way to spend your early 20s, though. For sure. You had like your gang, you know. And your uniform, you had your leather jacket, (laughs) you know, your boots. Mike had this pair of black cowboy boots that they had the duct tape to hold them together, you know. I got four of those. I got four of those now. (laughs) You had the leather pants, too. You remember you got those leather jeans? Yeah, I lost those. I lost those. Well, you know, they still make them, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Just rock dudes making the scene. I was working in a record store. It could have been a bigger. Cliche. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's go back to Mike Sniper from the label Captured Tracks. So, what was your A and R like? What did you remember all these bands, or what? Uh, what was the research like? Did you have to go through your college radio playlists of back in the day? I was. I was. I didn't go to college till 1995. So. Oh, is that, oh, okay. <laughs> college radio was already on its way out. So, and like none of these bands were being played on it. That's for sure. They I mean, were all gone by then. Yeah. <laughs> I did grow up in uh, the Jersey Shore, and there was 106.3, which Matt Pinfield hosted. I'm sure, I'm sure WFMU played the hell out of like Absolute Grey and 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 all those bands. What I was doing was basically going through my records that I bought because they were completely overlooked, right? So I would see, I would see a cover of a, uh, a sleeve like One Plus Two, that sleeve. I'm like, this looks like something I like. And then play it. And I'd be like, this song's good. Nobody cares about this. Okay. You know, and eventually, <laughs> but this goes back to when I was working at like Midnight Records and Academy Records and the Princeton Record Exchange. I was just a 
guy that worked in a record store. And I didn't think like I have a, I have enough here for a compilation. I had a friend over. It was actually Mike uh, from who was the original drummer in Widow's Peak and Easy TV, and he and his wife Pam, who worked at the label. They were over, and I think I played the Reverbs and maybe one of the other records on this comp. I forget which one. And I, that's when I started thinking, like, this is would be a cool comp. But if I told anyone I was making this comp in terms of the people on my side, they would think I'm completely crazy because the timing of it and what it represents and the fact that you have to create the market for mm-hmm. it. I don't see why. I mean, if you listen to it and think about people like this kind of stuff that don't know these bands, I mean, I didn't think it was that hard, but a lot of other people are like, you're out of your mind. Cause I would tell them like the, the bands on it. And I'm like, I've skipped over that record in the dollar bin for like 20 years, you know? <laughs> That was She Was Unkind by the band The Ferrets. Here's James Huey of The Ferrets. So what brings you to Portland? What do you what do you got going on over there? Well, I originally came out just to get a change from Rochester and came out about and back in 1996 and ended up, uh, I was going to leave music. I'd been doing recording engineering, then the studio kind of didn't have, was locked out with other like a big project and stuff. And I thought, oh, I'll get out of music, get in computers. Well, first thing that happened was I came out here and joined a band immediately. <laughs> and then um, ended up uh, actually doing a lot of uh, musical stuff with some of my heroes who, who were uh, on the West Coast. So, and so. Like what yeah, come on, come on, Jim. Don't <laughs> spill it out. Oh, we okay. need to. <laughs> um, sorry, I haven't talked to anybody in a while. <laughs> We're the same you way. Know, this is the only COVID isolation thing. So, <laughs> well, after I was working for a while, I saved up enough money, wanted to produce my own album, my songs, and so I got in touch with Russ Tolman, who was in True West, and also uh, produced Twenty Eighth Day on this uh, CD, and. Uh, Years ago, when I was in the uh, few bands back in Rochester, like the Invisible Party and the Ferrets, we'd opened up for True West, got to know them a little bit. So, um, and then uh, Russ brought him up here. We worked on my recording, and then I played on some of his, and then ended up uh, getting helping getting True West back together. And at that point, they needed a, a rhythm section. <laughs> and uh had this bass player friend of mine and we got to play with him for a number of shows and <laughs> that was great let's head back to rochester when it, <laughs> sure. where, where it all began is that where you grew up are you from 
there? Yeah, I was from the uh, suburbs of Rochester. That's upstate New York. Like how far away from I'm right. from Buffalo? Are you close yeah, Buffalo. to Buffalo? Or you- <laughs> yeah, you know, people down in New York City I used to talk to when I was at, working at a record store. They'd say, where is that? That's not upstate. And when i tell them, they were like, that's Canada, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's about 60 miles from Buffalo. And uh, it was the mm-hmm. home of Kodak, so that that's kind of things. And Chuck Manjoan and Lou Graham from Ford. Hey! Uh-huh. And the Chesterfield Kings. So <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> I did meet the Chesterfield Kings. In fact, the Rickenbacker, I, uh, my friend Chaz played on the Ferret song on the uh, compilation uh, we bought from Andy from the Chesterfield Kings. So hey. from her that's, that's true. We didn't even... Yeah, we didn't touch on that about uh, the Rickenbacker. It's kind of like the the the, the instrument of the strum and thrum. That's right, the, right. Uh, that's the instrument of choice. Everyone's got to have their own Rickenbacker. The, what? Uh, tell me your Rickenbacker story. <laughs> uh, well, we bought that from uh, Andy. It had been uh, played by Ori, who was in the Chesterfield Kings, and uh, got a great deal on it. it. Had the big Chesterfield Kings logo on it. I loved the sound of the Rickenbacker, like, you know, through the birds and the Beatles stuff. And then through uh, Bobby Sutliff and the Windbreakers and then R.E.M.'s uh, Reckoning album. I just love that album so much. So we got it and then we were using it in the studio, but we found like there wasn't a tuner back then. We didn't have a tuner. Those were so hard to tune. In fact, I was just listening to the track from the CD because they just received it. And I was like, it's still a little out of tune. I could hear that. <laughs> but, uh, oh, well, there it is. <laughs> okay, we're right in the middle of our talk with artists associated with the album Strum and Thrum. We'll be right back. to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Here's Mike Sniper of Captured Tracks. Tracking these guys down, you must have been almost like Indiana Jones trying to like, oh, I I have this. Now I have to find where these people are located. And I'm sure a lot of them were out of the business. And, uh, you know, so what was that? Some of them I didn't. Some of them I never. You never found them. I just assumed this LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter profile was them. Because what you do, you look at the name. And then you you find the artist, you find the band name. Okay, what's the most unique name in this band? <laughs> and then you like Google that name in the area that the band is from, the general area. And like nine times out of ten, they'd still have a be involved in in, in maybe not music, but art in some regard. You're like, oh, I bet you that's it. Or you go to their Facebook and it's all anti-Trump. It's like that. This is the <laughs> if you go to the Facebook and it's like you know, some hunter with a MAGA hat. You're like, I don't think that this is the guy (laughs) that band. (laughs) Hours of deduction.
That was the Great Plains. When do you say hello? Here's Mark Wyatt of Great Plains. Uh, Beaumont, Texas. Uh, Hurricane Alley. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. How'd you end up in Beaumont, Texas? Well, my wife is uh, an academic dean, and this is where she got a job as dean of arts and sciences at Lamar University. And I, I work um, from home, so I can pretty much follow her anywhere. I still have, I basically still have the same job as I did even before Great Plains started. That tells you how long I've been working at, with the American Chemical Society. So, can we go to Columbus for a second? I mean, is that where you grew sure. up? Born there in- almost all my life. Yeah. And so, what uh, what was the music scene like uh, back in Columbus when you were? You know, when we started, it was mostly bar bands, you know, doing country stuff and, you know, hard rock stuff and punk really, we, we got pretty much relegated to, you know, what I always call new wave nights, which was like the, the, <laughs> the, the, the night that was like the least populated in a bar. So they would give you that night, like Tuesday night or something like that. Mm-hmm. But once, like, once we got going, um, I mean, there were, there were good bands before us, but, um, we kind of kickstarted to some extent kind of a um a mini scene it was like us and scrawl and the gibson brothers uh the royal crescent mob you know there were you know and everybody eventually put out records and gibson brothers were on homestead just like us and uh well i'll give you a quick story of how we got on homestead so somehow our our bass player at the time don howland um he had just moved to um hoboken but he was going to join us for a show that he got. He put. He actually got us into a show that Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango was one of the people that booked it. It was called Music for Dozens, and it was at Folk City in uh, you oh, know in Manhattan. Gertie's. You know, yeah, where Dylan started. Right. You know? it's, it's not there anymore. We had. I thought we opened up for um, the Plugs, which I think had already. Mm-hmm. They changed their name to the Cruzados at that point. But we opened up for them. We had what I thought was. A fairly ramshackle show, but I guess it was exciting enough that the guy who actually started Homestead, um, Sam Berger, was working at Dutch East India Trading. He came up to me afterward and said, you guys were godlike. And, I'm, you know, he gives me his card. You know, already I was kind of like jaded. and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Who is this? You know, who is this bum? He's probably had a few drinks in him, you know. And, and um, so Ron looks at it. and He's a record store guy. He worked in record stores all his life and said, like, no, Dutch East India is a real company. <laughs> and so uh, Dutch East distributed our first DP. And then S- Sam kind of got Homestead going. And we were one of the first people he signed up. So Homestead really wasn't anything when we started. It, it got to be more than it was. But especially once they started snagging people like Sonic Youth and Dinosaur and, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Sure. I mean, you know, go to New York, get discovered, you know? Woo. What a cliche. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of a dream. It, it's, it was cool. It was very, I mean, we were, we were, we were kind of big shots for a minute in Columbus. Once we, once we got that deal with a New York label, you know, were you riding that, that way for a while? What was that like as, you know, um, like people came out in Columbus. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's nice to have, you know, we, we self-financed our first record and uh, you know, it was nice to have somebody else like, you know, pony mm. up the cash and had the distribution to get it out there. So we didn't tour as hard as some of the homestead acts. We were mostly weekend warriors for, for quite some time, but luckily from Columbus, you can be a weekend warrior and still play like Chicago, New York, like just half the country's right within a weekend, you know? And what was the college radio scene like? I'm sure in, in Columbus, it was great for you. Yeah. College radio was, you know, one of the, one of the strange things about, about Columbus is like, it's got one of the biggest universities in the country with Ohio state but virtually no support for our scene, certainly from any of the students. It was mostly like the art schools and, you know, and, Mm. you know, 
punks and stuff that would that would come out to, to, to our kind of shows. Um, and the College Station in Columbus was a student-run, you know, station at Ohio State, which was pretty cool. But, I mean, Cleveland has an amazing array mm-hmm. of, and still does, of um, college radio. They have a, practically a network up there, but we didn't have that. And certainly the big, you know, the QFM 96s and stuff wouldn't touch us for a very, very long time. And, and when they did, they played our, um, they played a, a import EP that was supposed to be played at um, 45 RPM. They played it at 33. Oh, God. <laughs> I still have a tape of it oh, somewhere. That's it's like, awesome. It was, it was hilarious. <laughs> so this song, this is called When Do You Say Hello? Yeah. How did this end up being the song for the album? It, this thing just dropped out of the sky. I mean, uh, it, it, we just got... You know, we got this email from Captured Tracks saying like, hey, we're going to put out this compilation and um, we'd like to use this song. They chose it. I'm just, I guess I was still the grumpy old jaded dude. And I was going like, who's Captured Tracks? And once again, Ron jumped in and said like, no, they're a great label. And I, then I started looking at their website and I'm going like, oh yeah, they are great. Okay. And they've been amazing through this whole process. It's, it's been extended, of course, because of the pandemic and everything. And we were even supposed to go to New York to help them with an album release, but that ain't mm. happening. So uh, <laughs> we've done a few reunions over the years, so we can knock the rust off fairly quickly. But Were you aware of this, the, these words strum and thrum and that uh, you might be lumped into that? Uh, no, I mean, you, you know, I think, you know, it's funny. I just got the, my, my band copy of it yesterday and almost, almost all the bands they quote say, we didn't think we were jangle rock. <laughs> we certainly didn't. <laughs> right. We called ourselves folk punk when people like cornered us and Colin, you know, describing us as anything. Um, it was, I like kind of had folky chords, but it was done punkier. I mean, I don't know. I, I brought a lot of garage to it because that's my thing. I'm a caveman, you know, garage organist. Is <laughs> that rocks together? Is that how you <laughs> grew up on like '60s garage rock, or what, oh, what was yeah, your I'm total total nuggets, dude? Yeah. I'm yeah oh, okay. <laughs> they sent the bands the limited edition orange vinyl. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is they're really great. I mean, it's um <laughs> the book is massive. I mean, like I'm just picking up the box when it came yesterday. It was huge, but yeah, it is really neat. A lot of my friends are on it. Good pals with the Tim and Bobby from the Windbreakers. Um, I, I even played on the, the two later Windbreakers records. A lot of, you know, most of the Homestead bands slept on my floor, like Salem 66 and, you know, Windbreakers and all that. You know, I was the, I was the hotel for, in Columbus for any of the Homestead acts. So. Apparently you were the one with the only steady job. Of, so, um, yeah, yeah. I, I was kind of an anomaly because I, I had a great job with the ACS when, when, when Great Plains started and, uh, you know, and I had a fair amount of vacation time. So I never had to take a split of any band money. You know, I always had, you know, beer and food for the bands that came in and everything because I had a job, you know, a real job. So, <laughs> so you were like the father figure. Uh, well, well, we were older than a lot of them. That's true. <laughs> we were the old guys on the scene. Yeah. I, just a quick funny. Um, so um, for some reason, so maybe about 10 years ago, Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. Um, was in Columbus and he, he comes up to me and you know, he always talks slow and he goes, hey, Mark, you still have that job? <laughs> <laughs> I go, yeah, Jay, I still have that job. <laughs> oh, he's a national treasure. <laughs> I love that so much. Uh, no, they were great. They they stayed, you know, Murph and, you know, the, the, the guys, they all stayed on my floor. Um, you know, God, those guys were loud. 
<laughs> Even without the instruments, they were loud. Really? Or are you oh, talking about the? No, no, no. I'm just saying their shows. We played with them oh, yeah. in Boston. It was like Salem '66, us, and then Dinosaur. They were just getting started, and it was so freaking loud that I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, they just pasted me against the back wall of the of the club. So it was. <laughs> yeah, they. Ha- it's still it's still that same volume. Sure oh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that hasn't sl- age hasn't slowed them down at all. They're still cranking no. it up. It's, it's great. No. God. We actually got asked to do a thing in Columbus about three, four years ago called Sick Weekend. And we headlined on, um, co-headlined on Saturday night with uh, the Zero Boys, who we, we, you know, Paul Mayhern from the Zero Boys produced our, our last LP, Some Things Up. So we've known him forever. And it was really fun. And there were, there were, it was, there were, it was a younger crowd too, which I really liked. You know, it's like, oh, wow, we haven't been totally forgotten. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> or maybe it's the parents taking their kids. It could be. <laughs> As we do. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Actually, Paul, Paul Mayhern like got on stage and said, like, said, like, you should have seen how we partied with your mom back in the day. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. Let's go back to Mike Sniper. Track order, a new personality you put as the last track. Yeah. And how do you how do you figure the track yeah. order? I mean, why the re why the reverb's number one? I mean, I think Salem sixty six might have been the only band I'd heard of. They're kind of in the middle. Yeah. You got the windbreakers number four. So anyway, what what is your strategy with that uh, with track oh, yeah. order? <laughs> it is science. Yeah, I know. Um, of course. <laughs> Please explain your science. So I mean, the thing is that it is like a batting order, right? So I like, uh, yeah, like the windbreakers are the cleanup hitter, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, reverbs. The first twenty seconds, you know what this comp is all about. The whole kind of idea behind it is, is basically laid out in the music immediately like uh, i know what this is you know and then you gotta come the second and third tracks also have to be a beat and then the windbreakers is 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 like mid-tempo and that's meant to kind of any artist who's making this kind of music should do it that way do not open with a slow song unless it's your fourth record right (laughs) it's like going to a live show you know what you what you expect yeah and i mean that's why i i was thinking i was thinking two ways like streaming and side to side like a record collector or like somebody buys the vinyl versus like, let's say a reviewer who's going to just stream the whole thing to review it or like 20 seconds of each song. And it's like, that's a lot of dangle, you know, right, <laughs> that's, a right, lot, right. that's a lot of strum and thrum. So, it, you know, you, you kind of try to diversify within, I mean, it's not a diverse comp. It's not supposed to be. How do we, let's get a moody song here. Let's get a song. That's a little bit more, folk rocky here let's get one that's a little more british influenced here right so yeah like a new personality is very british influence and it closes it and the reverbs is like completely american sounding to me that was on purpose plus a new a new personality is almost like that song is like uh, end credits of a john hughes movie or something, <laughs> you know? like oh they got together is that how you explained it to uh, a new personality <laughs> instead of like oh know, man I, you're, I, you have us last what Come on, credits. come on, let's, well, Brent, I, I knew Brian would get it cause, cause he's ahead, you know, and he knows like, the way, you know, I, I wasn't worried about that. Okay. Uh, the idea is that to keep reinvest, like re get everyone's grasp, have them come back to be excited about it as it goes. And that's why it's hopefully it this worked out. I mean, on Spotify, it's supposed to be two different playlists when it comes out, because I don't ask anyone to sit there and listen to these 38 songs. Right. So it's designed almost as like two volumes in one. Mm. And so, I mean, track one, 
side one of LP two, which would be Spotify part two track one, I believe is the Rift Doctors. It's a, it's the okay. same concept, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like you're doing the same thing the first time. So that's how I saw it digitally. I saw it. I was thinking about turning it over four times. If you have, if you buy it on vinyl, I was thinking about reviewers. And then I was also thinking about Spotify listeners and not asking them to do all of them. Listen to part one on Spotify, then listen to Al Green or whatever. (laughs) And then come back whenever you feel like it for part two is kind of the concept. That was Is It You by the Darrows. Here's Derek Chafin of the Darrows. I graduated from Villanova University and started my band right out of college. It was the first kind of real band I'd, uh, I'd been in, a you know, couple, couple cover bands. Yeah, so we started up in 85 mm-hmm. and set sail. I really, really want to try my hand at music. You know, I just want to do that for a while. And a while turned out forever. So, <laughs> so what was the Philly scene like at that time? I Oh my God, did we complain? (laughs) We complained and we wouldn't stop complaining. Um, But it was amazing compared to what, you know, bands have to go through today. Man, it was really the golden years. Uh, There were tons of places to play. There was an enthusiastic audience that really meant something. They were, you know, all the bands meant something to them. They were, you know, it was more than just, uh, let's go out and, you know, just have a good time at a bar. It was like, there was a feeling of, of wanting to be a part of that community and what, what, what we're trying to do, you know, being alternative and uh, kind of carving our own path. Everybody felt the similar vibe. So the crowds were amazing. It wasn't hard to pack rooms back then, you know? Oh, that's great. Did you have a, like, were you a house band at any certain club? J.C. Dobbs, definitely our home. It was uh, back in the day. I mean, it was the first place to host Pearl Jam. I saw Nirvana there. I think their legal limit was 150 people. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, Kathy James was the was the proprietor of the place. She was also our booking agent, it turned out. CBGBs and, and JC Dobbs are kind of like the, the, the same kind of entity. Kathy's skill was she really promoted bands she believed in and didn't think about, you know, what their draw was immediately. So the Darrows, you know, we went in and, and the first time, first couple of times, I, I just thought we were horrible. And... Um, didn't really feel good about the crowd and all that kind of stuff. But Kathy believed in us and she kept on putting us in. And pretty soon, you know, we were headlining on the weekend. So it was great. And also opening it for other bands. Um, so you could open up for nationals. So I think we opened up for Trip Shakespeare there. Okay. Yeah, all kinds of other you know, bands, um, which is not really accessible to bands now. You know, you don't open up mm-hmm. for a living, you know, we opened up for living color. It was like, that just mm-hmm. never happens. Uh, it was a great scene back then. And the crowd, the clubs, the choices, and also the camaraderie. Yeah. It was it was a healthy, competitive atmosphere. Like, I, I would see a band that I really dug, and it would inspire me to write a better song. Uh, I, I didn't feel like, oh, you know, 
I don't, I, you know, I don't want to hear them again. You know, I, I was like, wow, man, I, I got to do better. <laughs> yeah. you know? It was great. It makes me feel old saying this, but it felt like a much more organic process back then. You know, it was, than, there was nobody else but us. Uh, you know, there wasn't really, uh, we didn't feel like there were really record labels yet. That started to happen in the beginning. It wasn't like that at all. We just, we just, we just wanted to kind of do our thing and make our, you know, be a part of that conversation that was going on. That was it, you know? Yeah. After I guess the Hooters were uh, like the, the band that kind of yeah. exploded. Was that, did you see like after they came as after they broke that uh, there were more, uh, more industry people in the, in the audience yeah. at that time? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Philly became, you know, super hot there for a while. It seemed matter. Uh, you could tell. And you just, it was more of the question of who's next. Uh, that, that kind of feeling was around. We knew the clubs were packed all the time. We knew that people were really into it. Uh, and we knew that we had something going on here. But the music was very, very diverse. You know, uh, the Hooters were, were, you know, kind of a reggae band in Philadelphia. That's how they kind of started. And then there were other bands that were more kind of dramatic, that were almost a sh- like a theater show. And then there was, you know, our ta- the alternative scene, the college scene. Rarely do those two things kind of go together. Uh, those kinds of bands, uh, somewhere to straight up blues bands, uh, all that kind of stuff. So when we got to play those clubs, we were, you know, extra incentivized to, to do well. And, you know, it, it, and it was great. I mean, we played a room called the Chestnut, uh, Chestnut Streets uh, Cabaret, and it was, uh, I think, 800 person capacities. And, and we opened up for the Pogues there. And it was like, must have been insane. You bring game, you know, <laughs> Philadelphia. Yeah. The, the Pogues in Philly. I could imagine that. Uh... Oh my God. Was that the fun, a fun show? <laughs> oh my Lord. I came off stage and I literally danced from the front of the stage to the bar to get a drink and back. Mm-hmm. I, and I never, I didn't ask for it. It was if people started just like swinging each other around. So I tried to move that way. You know, and then move back that way. Oh man. It was great. Oh, oh yeah. That's a good scene. <laughs> and you should have seen the stacks of beer backstage. Oh my God. I've never seen so much beer. Did you, did you ever, did you get close to Shane? Did you ever, have you? Did you oh yeah. 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 Could you understand I mean, what he was, he was saying? That's what I want. That's what I want from Shane. Oh man. Uh, the band was great and friendly and, uh, and it was almost to a person. Every time we would come across a, a band in, in that environment, they were super kind. You know, let me color let us use the drum kit. Like, mm. you know, what, what headliner lets you use the drum <laughs> kit? Great. Just great experiences. Never ran into a problem. So you did manage to, you put out a, a record, I, I guess did. one record, one EP, uh, which is actually, I looked up, you're, we could download it for free on Bandcamp, which... Uh, oh, can you? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, you can, they're both, yeah, both of those, uh, both the, the album. Cool. I, I mean, Mark Schreiber has been curating, uh, the drummer, and he's been kind of curating. Oh, is that, the, the, oh, okay. The yeah, wonderful. Because yeah, actually, I did see that uh, you've also you uh, regrouped. You, you played together uh, yeah. after thirty years, right? <laughs> um, and it, that was—I got to tell you—that was wonderful. That was—it um, was amazing how quickly it came back. It was shocking. <laughs> how quick, I was like, man, we rehearsed and played and played and played. And if you just kind of took your mind out of it, your your fingers just did did the trick. You know, it was like. Was it Everybody knew where we were pretty quickly after when we started, because we were all, you know, like, oh my God, this is going to suck. Um, mm-hmm. We got to really work. <laughs> I mean, you know, we don't want to be, uh, we don't, I don't want to have a bad memory of the band. I want to, this mm-hmm. is about remembering how, you know, yeah, it was great. It ended up being super fun, really connecting between uh, all of us. I mean, what a long, strange trip it's been, you know, and, and uh, that stuff. And also just playing the, the music again and, and 
having the perspective now uh, of a guy in my fifties, when uh, of a guy looking back on our twenties and playing that music, the funny thing was we were much more aggressive now. Uh, <laughs> we were like, oh my, we got. I think we got to tone this down. You know, it's like, <laughs> like got a lot of anger after thirty years. <laughs> Yeah, I expect to be a little weaker. It was a lot stronger. We had oh, that's great. Off. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's yeah, good to know. That's funny. As you say, you have more, you have more confidence as you get older, and you've been playing for so many more years. Except that back then, maybe you have some blind confidence. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. So speaking of blind confidence, can we talk about this video you made for "Is It You"? Yeah. That's which is I, I watched it last night, and it, I mean it's. Obviously done on the cheap. I'm sure it was friends of yours in in, in Philadelphia, walking through Philadelphia. Exactly. Yeah, there was a uh, you know I'm I, I'm I'm remiss to remember. Uh, I should remember his name. I, I don't. He worked for uh, a local uh, public access cable thing. Uh, it was a called Adelphia Cable. I don't know if it was associated with a larger company later. Became Adelphia, but and he was bored out of his mind and went and you know wanted to do something. And he had all this gear and all this machinery. And and, and I was like, hey man, he's like, do you want to? can we do a video? And we did like the, you know, local public broadcast, you know, three of us went for an interview and, you know, three people are watching online, you know? Um, so I was like, sure, let's do a video. And I, I feel like I roped him into something. Cause I'm like, yeah, let's use eight millimeter film and oh, we'll wow. transfer that. And this is, <laughs> and he was so good. He was so kind, you know, to, to do it. And all the time he shot, you know, shooting it and all that stuff. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> you gotta be happy to be able to see it now. Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I definitely remember, like you know, talking to my friend, like, "Hey, can we use your barn to shoot this this right. one sequence in?" My girlfriend at the time is in the video twirling around. That's okay. Uh, I was going to ask who that twirling uh, vixen was. Who's yeah, like- yeah. It was uh, yeah, Julie Cowitz. <laughs> We're still friends. But she's yeah. It was you know, great. Everybody got involved. It had a very college feel to it. Like just yeah. like here we are, know, th- three goofy guys just dancing around downtown Philly. <laughs> That was it. That was exactly it. And it was, you know, it was a fun band. These guys were smart. They were funny. And there was just a feeling of, you know, get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, make, make some uh, make some video, man. <laughs> do something interesting. <laughs> Everybody did their job, you know. Right, right. Uh, going through this whole experience and, and being part of this compilation, uh, it really made me think about kind of your essence as a writer and, uh, you know, I've gone on to, to do all kinds of stuff and written string quartets and I've, you know, produced, um, you know, hardcore metal to, to classical records. And, and but there is nothing about like looking back at your first records and seeing the unbridled you, you know, like you don't have any language yet. You don't know how to do it. You just do it. Whatever comes out is just, rah. Mm-hmm. you know, it's it's the stuff deep down inside you. And man, is that important lesson to, to never lose touch with like no matter what I do or what I, where I go, I'm always going to have a bit of Darrow's in it, you know, cause that's how it manifests. That's the first time I really, you know, got to hear that about what I really mm-hmm. kind of am, you know, it's been cool recognizing some of that and listening to the music and going back and kind of, you know, wow, man, things don't really change, you know, <laughs> the way I kind of do a chorus or whatever. It's you know, it's just a something there that, you know, yeah, it's, what you heard as a kid, that's, uh, it always comes out. I think it's yeah, your, and also the, to not lose touch of the rawness. Uh, I think yeah. as a writer, you know, to, you know, the more, the more you, you learn sometimes the less instinct you have in it. And th- there's something magical about not editing that about just putting it out. Remember what it's like, that childlike quality, you know, of, of playing, of getting lost in it, of not knowing exactly what you're doing makes 
original creative music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm constantly telling people to not overthink it, you know, and myself included now. And let's give the last word to Mike Sniper. I mean, a lot of people who know me personally, I know um, what a record nerd I am. They're like, why haven't you made a compilation? It's just like, oh, it's got to be the right. I didn't want to make another of one someone else already made. You know, I, I wanted something. I'm not saying that this is a completely unique compilation. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there is some crossover with things like Teen Line that came out, which was mostly power pop, but did have some of this kind of stuff that Chuck Warner put out. There's precedent for sure. You know, I just wanted to make sure that it was, you know, Ricky Henderson's starting line. Your first batter's got to get on base, you know, <laughs> and he's got to get home. This was so great. This was really fun. I, I really enjoyed talking to all the artists that appear on the Strum and Thrum compilation. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I feel like uh, it was a reunion for a lot of these bands and uh, kind of cool that uh, some of these guys who hadn't talked to each other or or were not actually familiar with, with each other uh, are now now kind of know what this, this scene was like. Uh, they they kind of learned about uh, that their music, while it seemed unique in their little pocket of uh, whatever city they were playing in, there was actually another band that was playing music that was similar in style. Thanks to Mike Sniper of Captured Tracks, Derek Chafin of the Darrows, James Huey of the Ferrets, Mark Wyatt of Great Plains, and Mark White and Michael Sump of the Bangtails. Yeah, and we'd also like to thank additional members at the Captured Tracks. That would be Natalie Miano, Mike Brinkworth, Adam Gerard, and Chris Pappas. Thank you so much for helping us out in putting this episode together. This was so great. This was a really fun episode, and I loved hearing some of the music that I, I recognized and didn't recognize. Yeah, so the album is out now, so go find it. Go to your independent record store and pick one up. If you're in Brooklyn, you can go to the Captured Tracks store and pick it up there. Such a good idea. Thanks for listening to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. Very good. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. And its advanced beating technology keeps you seeing safely all year long. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Pick some up at Walmart today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.